Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, page 814 in the church Bibles. And in just a moment, we're going to read from verse 26 to the very end of the chapter. So it looks like we should be through with this chapter this morning. While you're turning there, um, if when we're through you have a question or two, I'd be happy to try to answer those questions for you about anything that's taken place or, of course, what was said this morning. So we're going to read the Bible and then we're going to pray and ask God for his help. Verse 26. I just hate to leave us. See? (laughs) What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the other should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregation of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Amen. May God grant us understanding this morning his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you know all of us by name, that you know our circumstances and you know our needs. So as we now gather around your word, a privilege, Father, we don't deserve, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that all of it is inspired, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that your people may be thoroughly equipped for every one of your good works. To that end, God, may your spirit please be our teacher this morning. And please, Father, accomplish your purposes. And please help me now as I prepare to speak. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. Well, if your Bible's open, you can see in verses 23, 4, and 5 that the God and Father of Jesus Christ has a deep concern for seeing unbelieving people become committed followers of a son through orderly local church gatherings, through orderly public worship gatherings. 
a context where the people of God are speaking the word of God in such a way that through intelligible and Christ-centered conversations and proclamations, the bad news of their condition and the good news of Christ's salvation will be heard. The result, you'll see it there in verse 25, falling down as the Spirit of God enables and worshiping God, exclaiming, God is really among you. In other words, conversion. And in much the same way, verse 26, again, if your Bible is open, that final sentence, you'll see again the heartbeat of this chapter. It's been running itself all through the whole of it. There it is. All of these must be done for the strengthening. Oikodome is that Greek word translated build up, edify, the building up, the edifying of what? Well, of course, it's the building up of the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, so that there are no gifts given by Christ, exercise, and no worship service done which do not have an eye on the outsider and do not strengthen the insider. So there are no gifts and no worship services done which do not have, if you would, an evangelistic ring to them. None. Which again underpins Paul's concern, which of course is God's concern, which therefore should be the concern of all of us who name the name of Jesus Christ this morning. A concern which says that in the exercising of our spiritual gifts, which Jesus Christ has so graciously given to his church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we must seek seek to strengthen. If your Bible's open, verse 4, verse 5, verse 12, verse 17, strengthen, build up the church and loved ones. That is spirituality. So whatever spirituality may be in other places, we know for sure that genuine spirituality is the using of our gifts for the building up of the church of Jesus Christ. Local, yes. Global as well. However, the problem in Corinth was that so much of what was happening in all their gatherings and in all their worship had a bent towards the edification of themselves, the individual. And when that happens... That will always cause division and destruction and disorder, which was all happening in the church in Corinth. So they were not building things up. They were actually tearing things down. The transforming work of the gospel, which bends us towards concern for others, was replaced by these Corinthians with self-centered displays that benefited only the self, only the individual. Therefore, what the church needed was to heed these words of Paul, pay close attention to them, and apply them in their life. And of course, what is true for them is equally true for us as God's church and equally true for all the churches that name the name of Jesus Christ. So this morning, our, our brief is pretty straightforward. Three headings, fairly straightforward. The first of which, and you'll see this on the back of your worship folder, if you received one, a word on worship. The second a word on women. The third is a word of warning. Okay. First one, Paul's word on worship. That's verses 26 all the way there to verse 33. So when the church in Corinth gathered, some of their gatherings more than likely were in large homes which could accommodate the people. Let me just give you one textual reference. 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the church in the home of Aquila and Priscilla. To their credit, when they gathered, they did not come as consumers, but they came as contributors. We know this because of the last sentence there of verse 26, or actually the second sentence, which describes for us, when they came together, everyone had something to bring, and you see the list there before you. Now, without getting too tied down on the list, 
Paul's clear message to them is straightforward. He's making it clear that when they gathered, any one of them in the offering of their gifts might be anticipated to act in public worship. Okay? However, just in case we might say here, well, if verse 26 is how worship is to be done, this gives all the justification we need to abandon any forms of worship, to abandon any orders of worship in, in, in favor of something which, at least on the surface, seems to far more spontaneous and, again, on the surface, seems much more spirit-filled. Now, the way in which we would reply to that is something like this. You first have to recognize that in verse 26, we have a description of not all of what Christian worship may be, nor all of what Christian worship is to be. And one of the key principles here when we interpret this is, and especially in Acts and the epistles, is that we need to understand what is prescriptive and what is descriptive. The passage here describes what was happening. And so that cannot necessarily be used as a prescription for the church of what should be happening, especially in public worship. And loved ones, that takes a lot of discernment to understand, so we won't misunderstand, and then begin to try to make any undue applications of what was happening. Let me just give you an example. When Paul gives his list there in verse 26, there are some things he doesn't mention which are part and parcel of the public worship of Jesus Christ. So he doesn't mention the place of corporate prayer, which we find in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and other places. He doesn't mention the place of the reading aloud of the Scripture, which we find in 1 Timothy 4. He doesn't mention the teaching and preaching role, which would be given by gifted individuals, and they would have that responsibility, Ephesians 3. Nor does he mention the Lord's Supper. Each of those things, a Christian would recognize is that those things are part and parcel and necessary in the public worship of Jesus Christ. Those, if you would, are the basics. Okay, so then what do we do with verse 26? Well, I think that when we take the Bible as a whole and we put together all the pieces of what the New Testament teaches us on worship, because remember we said last time, Jesus knows how he wants to be worshipped. Jesus tells us how he wants to be worshipped. So we put it together, we could see a picture of public worship which was marked by the gathering of God's people on the first day of the week, the reading of the Scripture, It's teaching, it's preaching, prayers, congregational singing as fundamental, and the basics then of the Christian worship would be those things. But also, we would say that there's there's an element which was part of some of her gatherings that had more of kind of a spontaneous and mutual element to it, which involved a lot more than just a few folks at the front. And it's to that dimension to which Paul is referring to here, a dimension that still needed to be guided. Now listen carefully. It still needed to be guided by the Word of God because, verse 40, in order that everything in those gatherings, they would be done in a way that was fitting. And by the way, the word fitting means honestly. They would be done honestly, right? So there's no playtime. There's no showtime in public worship, formal or informal. Honestly done and orderly done. Why? Oh, verse 33 and 34, because God is a God of order. So clearly the early church of Jesus Christ had formal gatherings, they had informal gatherings, and they were all to be marked by truth, theology, intelligibility, order, and usefulness. Particularly usefulness so that the outsider and the inquirer can can become the converted followers of Jesus Christ. 
And you know that takes us then right back to the central thing that Paul's been running through this chapter. No matter how spontaneous a gathering may be, they do not have the liberty to do anything they think is right, but they have the privilege and responsibility to do what is right because the concern here in public worship is namely the edification of the body of Jesus Christ, the building up of the body of Jesus Christ. John Stott, on verse 26, helps us, I think, when he says, the controlling factor is not personal enjoyment, but general edification. Whether in the larger context of a citywide church or the microcosm of the home church, Paul sees the need for control. And loved ones, I think that we would be so helped if we understood our public worship of Jesus Christ and all our gatherings in his name. I think we would be helped if we didn't think of them as a right, but as a privilege. Because if we think of worship, formal or informal, as a right, then we will more than likely try to exercise our rights. But if we think of it as a privilege, then we will look at it in a whole new way. Big eyes towards the outsider. Big eyes towards everyone else. And much smaller eyes on ourselves. You're sensible people. You'll need to think that through. Now, it's clear that when we gather in worship, we can't do everything in one Sunday. That's very clear, whether it's formal or informal. And clearly, the informal gatherings matter to God. In this verse 26, it may be akin to something like our home groups. It may be something completely different. But whatever it is, the principles are still the same. Again, last verse 26, they are done for the strengthening of the church. They are done thinking about the outsider. No spiritual gift is untied to the building up of the church. It was the Corinthians that were using tongues as what? Personal edification, personal use, and not, if you would, congregational use. So then in verses 27 and 28, what he says makes complete sense. Three commands about speaking in tongues. You see them there. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at the most should speak. Now, in Corinth, a worship service was something like a house party, right? Everybody was speaking in tongues at one time. They assumed that was spirituality, and clearly it wasn't. And some of you may have come from backgrounds where you were in charismatic churches, and that's what took place, where everybody was either singing in a tongue at one time, or everybody was speaking in a tongue at one time, and you have this kind of uh, religious mumbling going on, and there's nothing of instruction, there's nothing of intelligibility, there's nothing of order, and that kind of thing is clearly forbidden in New Testament worship. Clearly. So Paul commands, if there's going to be someone speaking in tongues, it's only two, at the most three, and by the way, one at a time. Now, think with me for a minute. That's pretty basic, right? Parents to kids, teachers to students, one at a time. I can't understand all of you when you're speaking one at a time. And that takes you back to verse 20, because Paul was telling them what? You guys need to grow up. You are so self-focused that you're talking like a baby. You're thinking like a baby. Would you grow up one at a time? I mean, first command, two or three at the most. Second command, an interpreter must be present. Now, what is not clear here is how this interpreter will be identified. But we do know that the interpreter is absolutely essential. And the reason that this person is essential is because if nothing comes of intelligibility from the tongues, then it's of no use to the church. No use at all. And edification is the key. 
And again, I suspect if you've moved in those circles where those kinds of things are done, it has a dreadful lack of interpretation. Lots of noise, no clarity. The third command, pay attention here because this might be new to some of us. The third command here is that if there's not an interpreter, and in the Greek it's written in the emphatic, which means that, yeah, okay, there could be two or three speakers of tongues, but there will always only be one interpreter. And you can't see it in the English, I understand that, but it's there clear in the Greek. So if there's no interpreter singular, then the two or three tongue speakers should be quiet in the church. So it's not that each tongue speaker has their own interpreter. It's the two or three only have one. And what we should immediately notice is beyond that is that the tongue speaker is in control of themselves, right? So again, if you move in those circles, the explanation is the spirit comes upon me. I just can't help myself. I just have to say this stuff because I'm uncontrolled. And they, they say, I can't resist. I just have to shout, shout, let it all out, as the song says. But Paul says, no, you can't do that. And the reason why you can't do that, because you have the ability to control yourself. Indeed, if no interpreter is present, you have the ability to zip it. So they are not at the mercy of, of any uncontrollable urge. They are not in some state of ecstasy, which is the way they try to do that, right? When it's done wrong. I just can't help it. I'm in the seventh heaven or whatever they say, and I just have to do it. And Paul says, no. No. Okay. So what he says of tongues, then he says a prophecy. Verse 29, much the same thing. Two or three should speak, and others should weigh carefully what is said. I mean, I could see this happening in a small group setting easily. You've got to weigh carefully what is said. A diachrony, diachrono, that's the Greek word. Think it through. Think through what is being said to you. Investigate. What is being said to you, which simply means open your Bible, and we say it here all the time, open your Bible and see what is being said is true. Now, Paul says the same thing to the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, don't quench the spirit, okay? Do not treat prophecies with contempt, okay? But test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil, the Apostle John, same thing. 1 John 4, 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And wouldn't you know it, Jesus Christ, our example in everything, he says the same kind of thing when he said, John chapter 7, verse 18, it's actually one of my favorite passages in all of John, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. If you would, whoever speaks with their Bibles shut does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Which means for us, as the word of God is opened up to us here week by week, or on any other occasion by any other person, when any time someone is behind this box, if you would, and saying something in the name of God, we must, by way of our responsibility, weigh carefully what is being said. Which is why I say again, you're sensible people, check your Bibles to see if what I'm saying is true. And that was the pattern in the church in Berea, right? Acts chapter 17 and 11, listen carefully. They received the message with great eagerness, great, and examined the scriptures every day. And by the way, that would be the Old Testament scriptures. They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So if they did it for the Apostle Paul, then they would do it for the rest of us. Absolutely, absolutely. Just quickly in passing, 
the Berean church didn't examine their own personal belief system to see if what was said to them was true. No, they examined the scriptures to see if what was said to them was true. Massive difference. Massive difference. One takes like that, and one takes time. One takes time. So, loved ones, your Bibles ought to be open on your laps, your smartphones, your devices. I mean, if I was you, that's what I'd be doing every Sunday. Bibles open, pins out, ready to go. Well, why? Because we need to weigh carefully what's being said. So whether it's prophecy or preaching or the speaking of tongues, whatever it is, if it's not clearly biblical, then it has to be clearly rejected. Listen to D.A. Carson on this wonderful quote. One of the more troubling aspects of the modern charismatic movement is the frequency of which prophecies are given as direct quotations from the Lord. Okay, and some of you have moved in these circles, right? So it wasn't too long ago that there was one of the better Bible teachers at the close of the 20th century. He moved in this kind of prophetic realm, which he would say was a step forward. So he's leaving all this behind to advance. So he would close his Bible and he would claim to speak prophetic words from God, directly from God, directly through him, just for that moment. Something like, thus saith the Lord, uh, you take the job, you marry the girl, and there's sin in the church. I'm like, okay, yeah. (laughs) I could have told you that one pretty easily because I'm a sinner. But anyway, so maybe he would read his Bible, but he would always close his Bible. He would never refer to the Bible again and then speak a word of prophecy beyond what the Bible teaches and says. Now listen carefully. That is not helpful. Not helpful. But let me tell you something that's just as worse. You have a person get behind the box, open their Bible, read the Bible, but never actually interpreting the text they just read. So they say something like, you know, I'm just going to tell you what God has laid on my heart for you this morning. Or they give some hodgepodge mess, you know, three stories, three jokes, maybe three points. Or they open their Bible, they read the Bible, misinterpret the Bible because of sloppy and poor uh, interpretation techniques, having misused all the given time that they were given in that week. Or the person just has the gift of the gab and they know how to flow and, and you're out of here and you're dizzy and you go home and what was said? Well, I don't know, but it sure felt good. Back to the quote. Carson a troubling aspect of the modern charismatic movement, the frequency of which prophecies are given as direct quotations from the Lord, he goes on, the result is that some charismatic leaders and their followers treat the prophecies of their leaders as if they possess the unqualified authority of God himself. And such authority on American religious television programming is then easily transmuted into a fundraising device. So, for example, the person says, God has given me a prophecy whereby I have been commanded to build this wonderful place. And God has also told me to tell you people to send me money. The problem here is there's no community of believers carefully checking out the claim, nor weighing carefully, nor do they submit themselves to any spiritually minded community, least of all elders in a church. The result is exploitation and manipulation and arrogance and sometimes dishonesty, corroding the person's humility, and as a result, the destruction of his followers' maturity. And loved ones, All that would need to happen would be for the people or the person to submit themselves to the plain, clear instruction of the Word of God concerning these matters. And where would they do it? Now listen carefully. Where would they do it? They would do it in the context of a local church, and they would do it in the context of public worship. The very places where they don't do it at all, right? They're like, this is okay, but over there, that's where the stuff's happening. 
It's bad. It's not good. It's not helpful. People's lives are ruined. Verse 32. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. Again, we see the prophet is not moved then by some irresistible force where he just can't stop it and he just can't help it. No, Paul says, verse 30, if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. And you guys, that happens in normal conversation. Someone speaks, another person has something to say, and you go, excuse me, I have something to add, and, and I think it'll help. And the speaker says, well, sure, I want people to be edified. Talk. And the other person goes on. And the reason why I say that is don't make this some kind of weird, mystical moment, right? person speaking, and all of a sudden the room gets quiet, and another voice, and all that silly stuff. That's, that's theater. That's not theology. It's theater. Verse 33. Why is this so? Well, because God is a God of order, and he's a God of peace. Therefore, we get to close with this first point. Why should we be concerned that our worship serves formal or informal? Whatever the service may be, why should we be concerned that it's marked by order? Well, because God is a God of order. That's why. Why should people be told what they may do or not do in worship, which was what Paul was saying here? Why is that even possible? Well, because God is a God of peace. And he's not a God of chaos. This is not a house party. This is a worship service. That's a word on worship. Secondly, then, a word on women as he takes a very deep breath. <laughs> Verses 33, 34, excuse me, and 35. Clearly a difficult text, right? So what do we do? Well, we have to remember that it's necessary to understand what's being said within the wider context and instruction. And we're going to have to use the whole Bible to help us interpret this text, especially, and I'd be the first one to admit, when you just flat read verses 34 and 35, it seems confusing, it seems archaic, and it seems very chauvinistic. Okay, so let's walk through this. The widest context you could possibly go is way back in Genesis 1 and when God created the world. And when God created the world, because God is a God of order and not disorder, his, his order extended through every one of his creative patterns. His order extended to everyone that he made. His order emerges then from his very character. Therefore, when God made Adam first, and then from Adam God made Eve, since God is a God of order, verse 33, his determined order mattered. However, and listen carefully, his order when it comes to a man or a woman or a husband or a wife has nothing to do with status or value, you know, me Tarzan, you Jane. No, that's not what is happening here. It has nothing to do with status or value, but it has everything to do with role and responsibility. In other words, what is my God-given role as a man made in the image of God to my wife what is my God-given role as a woman made in the image of God to my husband? What is my God-given role as a single man, as a single woman made in the image of God? Okay, the man in the home and in the church has a few unique responsibilities which are only for him, but he has common responsibilities which are common for all. In the same way, the woman in the home and in the church has a few unique responsibilities which are uniquely for her and common responsibilities then which are common for all. Men and women then reveal God's order by both submitting to God. The man's submission is by obeying God and being a servant leader in the home because a Christian husband is a man who puts himself last in the home 
His leadership knows nothing of being a tyrant. It is submission. It is not suppression. The woman's submission reveals itself in submitting to her husband and being her being his God-ordained helper and being passionately, listen men, passionately agape loved by her husband. So the husband is the kind of man that puts every one of his concerns aside and he takes on the responsibility of care and leadership in the home. The woman being made from man and for man, the man being made as a servant leader, leading the woman just as Christ would lead his church, caring for the woman just as Christ cares for the church. And ladies, listen carefully. This has nothing to do with employment equality or government equality or civility. I mean, the 200 years, at least in our nation's experience, we made a hash of those things. There has to be equality in employment. There has to be equality in government and civility. I mean, come on now. But there's just a few things, ladies, that you can't do. And husbands, there's just a few things that you must do. That's the widest context. This is a creation pattern ordained by God. God is a God of order. Again, it has nothing to do with status, who's the boss. It has everything to do with function. What's our role before God? Now, in the wider context is the instruction that Paul gives here in verses 34 and 35. The wider context is that the God who made everything and established his pattern is the God that they're worshiping. And his creation order matters in public worship. Okay, in what way? Good question. In this way, some of the ladies in Corinth, in the use of the gift of prophecy, were speaking as an authoritative voice in the church on their own, unchallenged. And since creation order matters, the husband, a servant leader, the wife, a submissive helper, then the word that Paul gives to them is saying, listen carefully, you've got to weigh carefully these prophecies. In the weighing and the foretelling, that can't be a lady, okay? The lady can't be an authoritative voice giving the word of God in the church. She has to be silent. And the reason is this. If a lady tries to interpret the revelation for the church, she thereby would put herself in the place of authority over everyone in the church because she's speaking the very word of God to the church as an authority. And the order of God way back in creation says, no, no, you can't do that. That's the perversion of the way that I made this world. So ladies, listen carefully. This does not mean a lady or a wife should never speak in the context of worship or in the church at all. That would be absolutely foolishness. And in fact, if that was the case, I listen to a lot of you speak out there, and we need to have words, right? No, that's not the case. So it seems to me that Paul has given a categorical statement here to an exact expressed circumstance, namely the use of tongues and prophecy and their interpretation, which would elevate a lady's role to a position that God doesn't permit, nor he is given. So listen carefully. This is not an argument from culture. This is an argument from creation. Paul says the same thing, 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Okay, Paul, why is that the case? And this is what he says. For Adam was formed first, order, and then Eve. Not, not Adam was formed first uh, status. Adam was formed first function. So order matters because God, verse 33, is a God of order. So in the framework of worship, when women in the church assume the voice of authority over the church, then Paul says, verse 34, you see it there, they have to be silent. Verse 35, they can talk it through with their husbands when they get home. Now, before we go on, two things, very important. 
Thing number one. Chapter 11, verse 5, Paul gives the instruction for women. He says, this is how you pray and this is how you prophesy in the church. Okay, he says that, chapter 11, verse 5. Chapter 14, we're told here, uh, they have to be silent in the church. Now, is Paul being a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction, right? Is he assuming that nobody's going to look in their Bibles in chapter 11? Hope not, and then chapter 14, he goes on. No, of course not. What he's doing is he's speaking from different angles. And let me tell you what I mean. He recognizes that clearly in some circumstances that it's okay for a woman to speak in a way and pray in a way in the church that still is an expression of her submission but brings a word of encouragement or brings a prayer to the body and that is fine. Now get that. Public prayer, public words, Christian service, all fine for the lady, absolutely. Because... If you just look at verses 34 and 35 and you just kind of read it in a flat and wooden way, you're like, we're a Bible-believing church and we're going to believe the Bible so tough. And if you do that, then let's just walk it through. There should be no way a woman should teach any Bible class. I don't care what grade it is. There could be no women committee chairs. There should be no lady at the door saying, welcome to West Coast. I'm glad you're here. And clearly that is nothing near what the Bible teaches. I say this with all the truth in my heart. I can think of easily a dozen ladies in our congregation that I serve in committees and happily serve. And they're smart and they're wonderful and they're organized and they are needed. And we would be less than half of what we would be as a body if they were not functioning in that way. Submission is not suppression. A lady should exercise her gifts in the church fully, and orderly. And that's what Paul is saying. Chapter 14, he's addressing authority. Chapter 11, something completely different. That's thing one. But here's thing two. It's so customary, the latter part of the 20th century, the early part of the 21st century, generally speaking, for the wives to know more about the Bible than their husbands. Right? The line, something like this. The man, the church stuff, and the Bible stuff, yeah, that's for ladies, and that's for children and people like Joe. (laughs) That was a cut down on me, okay? All right. It's okay, I'm fine with that. But it's not for me. And if you think that way, then the plain teaching of the Bible tells you that you're very wrong. This is what we have. We have women in the churches involved in Bible studies, getting really good with their Bible up to their ears. And we have men involved in work or recreation or hobbies, getting really good at those things up to their ears as well. Because of this, men don't make time to study the Bible. So the wife has to study the Bible to pick up the husband's slack. And they compensate then for his lack of knowledge. The husband's lack of knowledge creates a void in the home, creates a void in the church, has to be filled, and therefore women fill the vacuum. And then it becomes impossible, verse 35, to answer the question of their wives when they get home because they don't know the Bible. I mean, that's why by and large, like a women's ministry in the church is, is usually so vibrant and it takes the force of electric shock to wake up a men's ministry. Well, why is that the case? Because men are doing what Adam did way back in the beginning. And Adam had a responsibility and he just flat failed in his responsibility. And all of us are living with the fallout of Adam's failure. It'll be the same in the home. It'll be the same in the church. So this is not archaic. This is not chauvinistic. This is ladies, you have a role. And men, you have a role. And by golly, let's get after it. For the glory of Jesus Christ. So the church of Jesus Christ can be built up. You're sensible people. You'll have to think those through for yourself. Okay, word on worship, word on women, 
And I'm not sweating half as bad as I thought I would be. But anyway, final word of warning. That's verse 38. Pretty plain, isn't it? Okay, Corinthians, if you think you're so smart and you think you know everything to know about spiritual gifts and about public worship, then you refuse what I'm saying, Paul says. If you refuse what I'm saying, then you're refusing God Almighty. Right? And the byproduct of that is you're going to be ignored. They're going to be left with the fallout of their ignorance by being ignored by God. Look at verse 37. Paul says, what I'm writing to you is the command of God. So this is not opinion. This is not appeasement. This is not concession. This is not culture. This is the word of the Lord on gifts and on worship. Look how he leads off verse 36. Did the word of God originate with you? Right? That's what he's saying. Corinthians, do you think you know it all? Can you reject common church practice? Verse 33, as in all the churches. Are you going to reject a command from the Lord? Verse 36. J.B. Phillips translates that, by the way. Are you beginning to imagine that the word of God originated in your church? That you have a monopoly on the truth? Are you that ignorant to think that you got it all right? Right? So that you don't need Paul's instructions? You don't need public worship? Really? Really? Verse 37, if you claim you're spiritual, Paul says, then you acknowledge that what I'm saying to you is the truth. Now, listen carefully. That puts to bed the people who say, you know what, I really like Jesus, but I don't like Paul, right? Very, very bogus. What Paul wrote was the Lord's command. If Jesus Christ was writing a letter to the Corinthian church in that context, he would have said the exact same thing Paul said to them. There is no divergence between Paul and between Jesus. Let's get that straight. So Paul says, when someone speaks the word of God or claims to speak the word of God, prophecy tongue, it has to agree with apostolic injunction. It has to be weighed carefully. If, it's, if it goes beyond the Bible, stop it. No matter who says it, no matter how they say it, we reject it. Verse 37. If you don't do that, you're going to be ignored by God. The message. This is the way the master wants it. If you won't play by these rules... God can't use you. Sorry. So Paul says, verse 39, be eager to prophecy. That's fine. What is prophecy? The word of the Lord from the word of the Lord. And we're not going to stop or forbid tongues. But here's the deal. Everything is going to be done God's way. And everything done God's way is fitting and it's orderly. It's honest. Because God is not a God of disorder, but he's a God of peace. If done, the result, listen carefully, God is pleased, the church is edified, and the outsider becomes attracted to a community of harmony and beauty where nobody's thinking about themselves and the church of Jesus Christ is being built up. Now let me ask you this question square. What Christian, what spirit-filled Christian would not want the church of Jesus Christ to be built up? Who would not want that? It puts all, you know, but I like it with the people and I like this many and I, we've got to grow past that, you guys. We've got to grow past that. Okay, so if it's true that that will happen, then how is it possible? You ready? We reduce the self in worship. We search the scriptures after we worship. We elevate the value of the outsider, of the inquirer, so they will inquire of God because of our worship as we obey God's precepts. Everyone in our worship. In our worship. There's a lovely hymn. It's very, very old. It's mostly sung, admittedly, in Ireland, but the line that opens up says this O Lord of hosts, how lovely is your dwelling place. I'm not talking about a building, but he's talking about a people.
This is us, the building of God, the church of God, the body of Christ. An amazing privilege. Sobering responsibilities. Joy in our service. Clarity in our service. Edification to others in our service. That's not us. And we're going to have to go home and think these things through. Check your Bibles to make sure they're true. And then come back and be ready to battle for the glory of Jesus Christ in these things. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the clarity of your word. As always, God, it's, it's not that your word is unclear. It's just sometimes we're unclear people, that we have so much in our heads that needs to be filtered out and to be taken out so that we can see the beauty of biblical patterns, the beauty of biblical principles, and the loveliness of public worship, which is attractive, especially to the outsider. So, Father, give us the grace as your people, as we close this section on spiritual gifts, please, God, give us the grace not only to be filled with all the gifts that you would have us be filled with as a congregation, but that we'd be given the grace to use them in a way that truly does what Paul says we must do, edify others, whether it be the body, the outsider, the inquirer. And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be on all of us who name the name of Christ. Amen.